a trusted voice of truth and light. The narratives that mislead most of us aren't outright lies. They're the deliberate omission of facts that could give us a more complete picture. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. The world needs your leadership, and the essence of leadership is using your influence wisely wherever you happen to be standing. This is The Brian Hyde Show. And once again, I welcome you to the show. Let's revel in wrong think. It's an easy thing to do, and, and let me tell you why it's worthwhile, okay? This is not just a matter of being contrary. It's not just a matter of, you know, fight the power, man. It's a matter of asserting ownership over yourself. And I say this with the understanding that uh, that if you are part of this audience, hopefully at some level you're comfortable with being in the minority. Because there are an awful lot of people out there today who really just don't have that much interest in asserting their self-ownership. And it's not because they're dumb, okay? It's not because they're evil. It's because, uh, well, it could be a couple of different things. Number one, it's scary, and it's it's effort. It takes a lot of work in order to be a free, uh, clear-thinking, independent-minded individual. Let's face it, it, it. Life is easier when someone is telling you everything to do. It just is. There's less, there's less risk, right? I mean, you don't have to make the difficult decision. Someone will tell you, this is, this is what you need to work on, or this is what I want you to do. Stand here, jump on one foot, whatever. But for you to truly stand on your own, to really own your own worldview, that takes a degree of courage because it's inevitable. If you do that, at some point, you are going to have to break with the crowd. And the crowd, to put this nicely, has been trained from a very early age to punish those who are straying from the safety of the herd. I mean, we give ourselves excuse. Well, you know, they're crazy. You know, that's and but we're we're supposed to marginalize them. We're supposed to make them feel bad. We're supposed to bring them back into the herd. So, thank you for being a free thinker. Thanks for being part of this show, and and revel in the idea that uh, you know what, you don't have to be standing with the majority to be at peace. In fact. This is one of the great lessons of life. If you really want to be at peace with yourself, with your conscience. There's going to come a point you're going to have to choose to separate yourself from the herd. It's inevitable. And a lot of people are not willing to do that. They just can't bear the thought of that that degree of psychic pain that comes from not being, you know, walking with the crowd, not fitting in, not blending in, and, and otherwise not stand, standing out. So, my thanks to you for being uh, courageous enough to try something a little bit different. I want to talk about the most pressing power struggle of our day. You know, it's not the presidential election. I know. No, it's, it's not any of the other political races either. It's the battle between the lockdown ideologues and the rest of us. Saw a great article from Philip W. Magnus. This was on the American Institute for uh, Economic Research. It's an article called The Fake Signature Canard. And this is a perfect example of how far some people will go in their effort to control the folks around them. This is talking about uh, the Great Barrington Declaration launched back on October 5th. And you would not believe 
the lengths of deception and and desperation that its detractors have been have been resorting to. Philip Magnus uh, lays this out beautifully. He says, since its launch on October fifth, the Great Barrington Declaration's website website's success has exceeded anything we could have imagined. The primary signatories include dozens of leading epidemiologists and professors of medicine, Nobel Prize winner in chemistry Michael Levitt, and of course the three authors Martin Koldorf of Koldorf of Harvard of Harvard rather, Sunetra Gupta of Oxford, and J. Bhattacharya of Stanford. Now he says, as of this writing, over nine thousand health scientists and twenty-five thousand medical practitioners have signed. From its original conception. He says the authors of the declaration wanted to include the general public in this initiative as well. The COVID-19 response is an unprecedented public health issue affecting human beings from all corners of the globe. But he says we're proud to announce that in only 10 days, the petition garnered over 500,000 signatures with representation from almost every country. He says the people have spoken and they've judged the heavy-handed lockdown approach to the pandemic to be a complete disaster. Now, of course, not all are happy with this stunning display of both scientific and popular support, though. And instead of engaging the Great Barrington Declaration's arguments, a small group of pro-lockdown activists from the ranks of the public health profession and journalism have chosen to wage an aggressive name-calling campaign against the petition on Twitter and social media. Now, Philip Magnus says their behavior to date is both juvenile and self-discrediting, yet they've also ventured into the territory of outright professional misconduct. He says, You may have seen the results of the lockdowners' smear campaign in the tabloid press, with articles asserting that the declaration was signed by obviously fraudulent names like Mickey Mouse and Dr. Johnny Banana. Well, while some hoax signatures are unavoidable, that's, that's an unavoidable feature of any public petition, no matter the safeguard. He says in this case, they derive from an intentional lockdowner campaign to manufacture embarrassing news stories about the declaration without having to engage its scientific merit or its widespread public support. He says the hoax campaign began in earnest on the morning of October 9th, largely the result of a Twitter campaign by a self-described London, quote, journalist named Nafiz Ahmad. Ahmed, rather. Ahmed, who writes for a fringe political blog called the Byline Times, has spent the last several days circulating a flurry of conspiracist posts about the Great Barrington Declaration, including patently false claims about AIER and its funding. Philip Magnus says on the morning of the 9th, Ahmed attempted a new tactic, urging his Twitter followers in a viral thread to flood the signature page with fraudulent names. Ahmed submitted a fake signature himself impersonating a doctor from Harvard Medical School, and boasted of the same in several tweets. His followers copied him, suddenly swarming the website with hundreds of signatures from Donald Duck, Dr. Coronavirus, Bodie McBoatface, and a number of vulgarities, racial slurs, and similarly trollish submissions. In a few moments' time, the hoaxers had created a controversy of their own initiative, which they then pushed to lockdown supporting journalists as a story about the very same signatures they added. And the result was a completely manufactured news story intended to discredit the Declaration's actual signers. Now, curiously, none of those stories mentioned the fact that hoax signatures were almost immediately flagged and removed from the Declaration. Ahmed's fake submission lasted only an hour or so before being removed, 
and the site's web team immediately went to work at blocking the flurry of false signatures. Over the next several days, he says our web staff went to work individually authenticating signatures, as well as identifying and deleting the hoax submissions. Well, he says the statistics from that effort are now in. We estimate that only 0.1% of the online signature submissions up until that point were fake. All of these have been removed, and the majority were pre-flagged for deletion without ever appearing on the list. This involved the deletion of fake signatures from luminaries such as President Donald Trump, Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson, pro-lockdown physicist and epidemiologist Neil Ferguson, and the noted nuclear scientist Bruce Banner and Dr. Strangelove. While a few of the hoax submissions raised a good laugh, he says these also became casualties of the authentication process. Perhaps saddest of all, we had to decline the support of legendary 1980s rock star neurosurgeon Dr. Buckaroo Banzai. But the vetting process worked exactly as intended. The hoax signatures are no more, and most never made it through in the first place. Now, Phil Magnus says when we analyzed the data from the hoax signatures, a clear pattern emerged. Ahmed's juvenile Twitter activities produced a noticeable surge in hoax submissions, which had only accrued at a trickling pace up until that point. He says, in total, we found that some 415 out of some 943 hoax signature submissions up to that point appeared within 24 hours after Ahmed's call to flood the petition with fraudulent names. And he has a chart here that shows how those hoax submissions sharply spiked on October 9th and since have reverted to the previous pattern. These fake signatures have all been removed. Continued attempts to hoax the site are now automatically flagged for review and deletion. Phil Magnus says, as the data show, the Lockdowners troll campaign accounted for almost half of the fake submissions, the very definition of an attempt to manufacture a news story. And while they likely thought they scored an Internet victory of some sort by cynically deflecting attention away from the disastrous public health efforts of their own botched pandemic response, he says all they really achieved was putting their own increasingly desperate tactics on full public display. This is an article you really should see for yourself, if nothing else, to see the chart and let your own eyes tell the tale of, uh, wow, they were that desperate. Here's the key, though. None of it addresses the actual data or the actual ideas put forth by the authors of the Great Barrington Declaration. If you haven't checked it out for yourself, maybe you should consider it. Maybe even sign it if you agree with it. But do your own due diligence, right? This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Our program is brought to you in part today by the Staples-Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. Now listen, Patriot Home Mortgage, they may have had a humble beginning in little old St. George, Utah, but they are now 23 states strong. And if you are in the market for a mortgage for your home, if you are looking for, you know, a refinance, if you are looking for, uh, you know, getting pre-qualified so you can go out and shop for a home, talk to John Staples and his wife, Heather. They are the Staples-Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. Let them do the legwork for you. Let them guide you through this process. 
They know what they're doing. John is one of the most scrupulously hardworking individuals I've ever known in my life. So much so that I feel absolutely confident in saying, he'll take good care of you. I would have no hesitation to hand anybody off to him and say, this is your guy. You can check him out by going to staplesmortgage.com. That's staplesmortgage.com. Again, it's the Staples Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. Tell them thank you for sponsoring the program. Well, things have been getting pretty Orwellian for a while, but we just hit another mile post of sorts, uh, changing the meaning of words on the fly to support the official narrative that we're required to believe. Remember uh, earlier this week, uh, Amy Coney Barrett uh, was, was taken to task because she used the term sexual preference as opposed to sexual orientation, and the oh-so-woke became terribly offended that she would use an outdated term. That wasn't the weird part, though. The weird part was that after she was criticized, Merriam-Webster's online dictionary actually went in and changed the definition. Oh, yeah, that's an offensive term. It's like, it's like we live with a modern-day ministry of truth, maybe several of them. Well, here's another aspect of it. You know these uh, riots? <laughs> Sorry, I don't know if I'm supposed to say that. These riots that we've seen uh, going on since uh, oh, about the 1st of June, now apparently the Associated Press is uh, putting out new guidelines on how to report on these things. And they don't want you to call it a riot. Why? Well, because uh, that, that, could, that could mislead people into thinking that uh, something bad is taking place. <laughs> really? As if the, uh, you know, the burned out cars and buildings and the beaten people and, and, and the violence. Uh, huh. I don't know why I would have thought that was a bad thing. Man, thank you for catching that. You guys are so great. Annie Holmquist writing for intellectualtakeout.org has a great article, Yes, AP, There Is a Riot Cause. And she reminds us, back toward the end of August 2020, CNN became the butt of jokes when they showed a reporter standing in front of burning buildings in Kenosha, Wisconsin, a direct result of rioting over the Jacob Blake incident. But the kicker came from the title over the bottom of the burning images. Quote, fiery but mostly peaceful protests after police shooting. And he says such blatant contradiction was laughable a sign of serious cognitive dissonance that any thinking person could see right through. It appears, however, that CNN was just one step ahead in the new playbook or in the new media playbook. In late September 2020, the AP Stylebook rolled out its new standards for reporting about riots. Check this out. New guidance on AP Stylebook Online. Use care in deciding which term best applies. A riot is a wild or violent disturbance of the peace involving a group of people. The term riot suggests uncontrolled chaos and pandemonium. Focusing on rioting and property destruction rather than the underlying grievance has been used in the past to stigmatize broad swaths of people for, who are protesting against lynching, police brutality, or for racial justice, going back to the urban uprisings of the 1960s. Unrest is a vaguer, milder, and less emotional term for a condition of angry discontent and protest verging on revolt. Protest and demonstration refer to specific actions such as marches, sit-ins, rallies, or other actions meant to register dissent. They can be legal or illegal, organized or spontaneous, peaceful or violent, and involve any number of people. Now, Annie Holmquist says, AP Stylebook's tweet thread starts out well enough. Individuals should use care when deciding when to use the word riot. 
In fact, news organizations like CNN should have been more careful with their word selection. Given the incidents of the last several months, the word riot, as defined by the AP, should have been used far more than the peaceful protests alternative. But she says, then the AP style but goes off the deep end by intimating that reporters need to focus on the underlying grievance driving riots. Since when, one might ask, must reporters choose their words based on the underlying grievances which may or may not be present in an event? Will news become even more subjective as reporters grapple with what they perceive as underlying issues affecting a situation? She says, perhaps ironically, such guidance by the AP demonstrates that there is a major problem with rioting in the United States. Rather than creating alternative narratives, however, true reporters should ask questions. Are there underlying grievances, as is suggested, or is the violence we see spurred by underlying cultural issues that many in the media would like us to ignore and forget? Now, from here, she points out that the late author and historian Russell Kirk would say the latter. In his book, The Roots of American Order, Kirk notes one of the more pressing perils of our time is that people may be cut off from their roots in culture and community. The rootless are always violent, Hannah Arendt says. Well, that being the case, Annie Holmquist says, let's ask if those we see rioting today are rootless. And she asks the question, are they anchored in families, the core of society? A 2019 Pew Research survey found 23% of children 18 and under come from single-parent homes, suggesting a high level of instability in family life. Are they rooted in churches and neighborhoods? Connection points that offer support systems on both the metaphysical and physical levels. Gallup reports that in the two decades preceding 2018, church membership dropped from 70 to 50 percent. With regards to communities, only 45 percent of those between 18 and 29 report feeling attached to their community, a stark contrast to the 73 percent of adults 65 or older who feel the same. And by the way, she's got some great charts here to back this up. As Kirk goes on to say, whenever people cease to be aware of membership in an order, an order that joins the dead, the living, and the unborn, as well as an order that connects individual to family, family to community, community to nation, these people will form a lonely crowd, alienated from the world in which they wander. And to the person and the republic, the consequences of such alienation will be baneful. End quote. Now, Annie Holmquist says, no one wants to talk about this lonely crowd detached from the traditional moorings of family and community. Instead, their problems and violent outbursts, rather unrest, are pinned on racism and other grievances. So she asks, what will happen if we continue, like the AP style book, to make excuses for violence while trying to convince the general public to move along, there's nothing to see here? Sadly, she says, such actions will only hide the real problem and cut short the precious time we have to reverse course. To quote Kirk again, moral and social order, or a vast part of it, may be destroyed by a few years of violence or a few decades of contemptuous neglect. Then hope is lost for many generations, for order is a kind of organic growth, developing slowly over many, gener over many centuries. Rather, To live within a just order is to live within a pattern that has beauty, the individual finds purpose within an order and security, whether it is the order of the soul or the order of the community. Without order, indeed, the life of man is poor, nasty, brutish, and short. He says no order is perfect, but any tolerable order may be improved. 
Now, Annie Holmquist concludes by asking uh, a few pressing questions here. She says, we can continue to promote a continual victim status, as the AP seems to be doing. We can just justify the riots continuing to flare up across the country. Or we can seek to restore true order by addressing the deeper issues of the heart and soul that plague young Americans. One leads to order and security. The other leads to nasty brutishness. And here she asks, which path will you encourage our country to follow? Okay, fair enough. I just find it ironic that, uh, you know, we're, we're supposed to ignore reality and just stick to the narrative. I mean, thanks a lot, AP, but I don't think you're doing us any favors, at least those of us who are actually concerned about knowing what the world is really like. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Hey, if you check out the show notes, which I encourage you to do at thebrianhydeshow.com, can I ask a small favor? Would you please consider leaving me some feedback? You can always drop a comment at the end of the show notes. Give your thoughts, your observations. I'm also very interested in feedback on how I can better serve you through this microphone. And I'm dead serious. Now, there, there, you can contact me through the website. There are ways to, to drop a line there. Uh, you can leave a comment on the show notes. If you subscribe to the podcast, which you can do through the Anchor FM page, there's a link on the show notes that will help you do that. You can also actually leave a voicemail. It's fun to hear your voice. And actually, it's kind of fun to reconnect with some of the uh, listeners I've, I've picked up throughout the years as I've made my way along. But I, I would really love to hear from you. So please consider this my invitation for your feedback And uh, please continue doing your part to help keep me on track. So, look, as happy as that uh, rioting bunch seems to be, and they really do seem like a happy group of people, right? If you look at the arrests, like from the uh, Portland uh, Sheriff's Office page, you know, people that have been booked into jail for rioting, that is a well-adjusted, thoughtful, and uh, I would say happy group of people whose faces you see peering back from those booking photos. All right. I was holding for laughter, but to actually, let me just reach over and switch off the sarcasm. Um, I'm, I'm trying to be delicate in how I say this, but I don't think that I have ever seen a more consistently broken collection of human beings. And, and I don't say that with, with contempt. I say that with the understanding that um, there, there is there's something missing from the lives of these individuals. And, and I don't know what it is that has, has drawn them to, to such a dark place. But those are not healthy people that you're looking at. Mentally, spiritually, they are not healthy. And that comes through in their language. It comes through in their actions. And sadly, it comes through in, in the, the causes and the, the ways that they embrace trying to, to solve or address their pain. Now, I don't agree with... The, with the way that they're approaching the problems. There are some real problems out there, and there's injustice, and there are things that there are things for which we should stand up. And I can't fault them from the standpoint of, well, you know, they're not just sitting there passively taking it. I'll, I'll compliment them. They are committed to a course of action, and that's more than most people are willing to do. Now, unfortunately, it's a very destructive course of action. 
So what might be a better way that we could register our displeasure with the way things are and our disapproval? Well, believe it or not, Judge Andrew Andrew Napolitano has a great idea. And this is one of his classic essays, which is just question after Socratic question. But I like the question he's asking, which is, what if we ignore the government? He says, what if we all start a return to normal life now that the government says the worst of the pandemic is behind us? What if we all make conscious choices to move about as before or to stay sheltered based on our own exercise of our own informed free wills and not on the basis of governmental edicts? What if each of us decides it's healthier to breathe in fresh air from outside or recycled air from under a mask? What if massive numbers of us make these decisions on our own? What if the governor's edicts don't really carry the force of law? What if governors have assumed the power to tell us how to live from either out of thin air or from unconstitutional and outdated state laws? What if it is profoundly unconstitutional for a state legislature to give its lawmaking powers to the state's governor? What if, when that happens, all the governor's edicts, based on that attempted passage of power, are null and void? What if we simply behave in a manner that shows we understand that these edicts are unlawful? What if high school and college athletes play their fall sports without regard to gubernatorial edicts? What if public school superintendents and college and university presidents open up outdoor venues for folks to decide on their own whether they want to stay home or come out and watch a football game or a soccer match? What if the police, many of whom have school and college-age children, cheer on the athletes and join the observers at these games? What if they do so notwithstanding any commands from their superiors because these commands are unlawful and they know it is unlawful to obey an unlawful command? What if restaurants served their complement, their full complement of customers and folks became so happy that restaurants were once again jammed? What if restaurant owners and customers made these choices on their own? What if small businesses borrow money from banks flush with cash because interest rates are so artificially low and use those funds to restart their businesses? What if customers of those businesses choose to patronize them? What if shopping malls reopened and permitted folks to walk wherever their fancy took them? What if fire and police and EMS and healthcare workers all joined in a mass exposition of personal liberty in our once-free society? What if the governors who've restrained us lose so much support that the only, fo- only the folks whom they've frightened to death listen to them? What if this resurgence of freedom uplifts our spirits, reunites us as a nation, and is a step toward the realization of our rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness? What if, as Thomas Jefferson wrote in the Declaration of Independence, our rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness are inalienable? What if an inalienable right can only be taken away in a free society for violating someone else's rights and only after conviction by a fair jury trial? What if an inalienable right, sometimes called a natural right, cannot morally or constitutionally or legally be taken away by a governmental edict or by legislation or even by a referendum? What if unalienable, inalienable rights rather are integral to each person's humanity? What if the whole purpose of an independent judiciary is to be anti-democratic? 
What if its purpose is to preserve and protect the life, liberty, property, and pursuit of happiness of those whom the government targets because it hates or fears them? What if life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness were not just Jefferson's musings for a free people, but are the bedrock moral, constitutional, and legal values of America, established in 1776, renewed whenever any government employee from janitor to president takes an oath of office, and are the foundation of all American laws? What if each person's right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness is each person's choice as to the exercise and pursuit of those rights? What if we have other inalienable rights such as the freedom of speech, the right to assemble peacefully, the right to worship, the right to travel and to self-defense, the right to fairness from the government, the right to take chances, the right to own and enjoy property, and the right to be left alone? What if government workers join in a massive civil disobedience of local and state rules governing personal behavior on private property? What if the governors who have been controlling us realize they have no real support and thus have become toothless? What if when government fails to protect inalienable rights, we simply ignore it? What if ignoring the government is a pipe dream? What if most folks are afraid of the government? What if, in only, what if only a few in, in government take seriously the lofty language about the government deriving all its just powers from the consent of the governed? What if the government uses force to, un, to enforce its unlawful decrees? What if the government uses each crisis to expand its power? What if when the crisis passes, the government retains the power it took during the crisis? What if the history of American government is the history of governmental power growing and personal liberty decreasing? What if we ignore the government at our peril? What if when government tramples our rights, we alter or abolish it? What if the time to do that is coming? What if that time is here? What if, as Jefferson wrote, when the people fear the government, there is tyranny? What if when the government fears the people, there is liberty? Again, this is one of those great Socratic essays from Judge Andrew Napolitano. And, you know, I kind of, I leave this up to your own emotional associations as far as, well, I don't know, that sounds pretty radical, or that's, that's getting out there. But I will tell you with all my heart, we are at a point right now where that moment of decision is here. And it's in big ways, in small ways. Some places, you know, the the lockdown uh, mentality is almost complete. Take, for instance, Australia, New Zealand, where people literally are having the doors broken down and being dragged away and arrested by police simply for engaging in conversations on social media suggesting, hey, we ought to be protesting these lockdowns. In smaller ways, you see those uh, gubernatorial edicts. There will be masks worn everywhere, and we're going to keep this county at this level and this county at that level, and businesses have to do this, or else we take their business licenses and so forth. There's a whole spectrum of tyranny out there, but the bottom line is it's going on right now, and it's being done under illegitimate authority. I don't believe violence is the way to counter that kind of thing, but I absolutely believe the right to withdraw our consent is a right that we're not exercising nearly as often as we should be. I can't tell you when it's time to do it, but I can tell you now's the time to be thinking about that decision. 
This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, once again, welcome back to the show. So, let's talk about uh, why we care so much about politics these days. You know, look, I expect it here in America. What's funny is I've, I've watched with great interest a number of people, and I've listened to a number of people. Um, uh, one, of, uh, one of the hosts on the Fed by Ravens Media Network, uh, Neil Larson, uh, did a trip with his son recently, covered about 2,200 miles in uh, just a few days. And, and I thought it was very interesting that uh, he actually, uh, he said that he had taken his son, I think, through uh, Utah, through northern Arizona, and really paid attention to all the different political signs out there, all the Trump signs and so forth. And, you know, fascinating as that is, what surprises me is how much mania there is over this presidential election in places that are far away, like, for instance, in the U.K., do you realize there is just a huge amount of interest? In fact, there's a terrific article online here from, this is Joaquin Book from the American Institute for Economic Research. And listen, listen to how he opens this piece. He says, the morning after Trump was elected, people in my university class were crying. Fair enough, he says, you think you've heard about the emotional fragility of today's youth and maybe you've read Greg Lukianoff and Jonathan Haidt's great book, The Coddling of the American Mind. So he says, if so, you're not unfamiliar with youngsters overreacting to seemingly mundane and pretty inconsequential things. Strange to cry about a vilified political figure getting elected, but not unheard of. But he says, the kicker, this was in the UK, a literal ocean away. And he asks, why did my fellow classmates with no immediate connections to the US or intentions to move to America react like this? And Joaquin Book says, I see at least two reasons. He says, the first is the dominance of symbols and emotions over reason, part of which Lukianoff and Haidt have so expertly identified in their book and preceding articles. He says, what matters to the most vocal of today's campaigners isn't actual impact, but feeling good, not doing good. It is of utmost importance that the people of your tribe occupy the central megaphones of the world and most certainly the seats of power. He says the second is the mindset of a top-down central planner thinking erroneously that all major changes in life and society happen because a politician or at least a bureaucrat willed it into action. He says my classmates seriously thought that the wrong person into the White House translates into disaster even for her life on a different continent. Now, he says the fabulous Deirdre McCloskey is, as always, wonderful on this. Get out of your head. Warren Buffett also, almost radically unconcerned with the latest political fads or stock market tantrums. And he says they see the bigger picture, that changes in life, markets, and societies are subject to much longer trends and are much more pervasive than whoever happens to wield the powers of government in one country at any given time. Besides, he says, bar a complete corona collapse of the West, our political institutions work fairly well, checks and balances and all that. While not front-page stuff, a lot of controversial and aggressive political action in recent years have been struck down by judges. 
Trump puts on, puts on a big show, does a lot of talking, as Nicholas Nassim Taleb would say, but there isn't much happening. Almost nothing in the world happens because the tip of a political iceberg decides something one way or another. Almost everything that happens, good or bad, happens organically, decentralized, spontaneously, as the sum total of all of our individual actions and beliefs. Politicians change things on the margin, tax rates a little bit up or down, this regulation or that changed a little bit, some policy covering more people or perhaps fewer people. With the reaction to the pandemic being a massive exception, political leaders really don't do that much in the world. But Joaquin Book says even that is not so clear. Those of us opposing the lockdowns are in the strange position of blaming the politicians for events that at least, to some extent, would have happened anyway. Early in the pandemic, for instance, he says, Will Luther, on these pages, showed that many, if not most, of the behavioral changes we experienced in staying at home occurred before lockdowns came into effect. Meaning we can police ourselves as well as an authoritarian regime can relegate us to our homes by force. And even looking at relatively open societies like Sweden or Iceland, what American and British politicians can reasonably be blamed for is the overreaction compared to those baselines, not the full way down to zero in the Oxford Government Response Index. Not all of what's gone wrong in the U.S. or the U.K. is to blame on the unfortunate politician inheriting the situation. Only the parts which they exaggerated, overdid, underdid, or botched. Now, he says, Matt Iglesias, also always an interesting writer, seems to believe that Trump has changed policy in ways that affect the lives of million, millions of Americans. And Joaquin Book says, maybe, but isn't this just present bias talking? We're so wrapped up in the now that we forget to see the bigger picture, the long-run picture. If we are to believe Iglesias writing in his defense before the pandemic, the changes to American society that are associated with Trump include some fewer people get to vote, some fewer white-collar criminals going to jail, some people having their health insurance coverage changed and ostensibly packing the Supreme Court with slightly less liberal judges, which will in turn for the future affect the law of the land somewhat. Now, i got to correct him on this. Filling those vacancies, even if it is with ideologically compatible judges, is filling vacancies. It's not packing the court. Packing the court requires actually changing the number of justices, for instance, on the Supreme Court. I know it's a minor thing, but uh, since, since we've been quibbling over language earlier in the show, I thought I'd at least be consistent. We ought to get the consistent. We ought to get it right. Oh, and Joaquin Book says, and add somewhat laxer environmental protection rules and easier lives for miners and frackers. That's really about it. That's about all the change that uh, most people in American society were going to see that they could say, yep, that's because of Trump. Now, he says, depending on your degree of ideological hysteria, that might be a lot or too much. But in the grand scheme of things, it's hard to say that any of it is revolutionary or something worth crying over uncontrollably. And we don't need a life-changing pandemic to remind us that changes elsewhere in the world, health, markets, innovations, fashion, trends, or beliefs among the rest of us, clearly outweigh anything that the so-called leader of the free world does. Now, perhaps the president appoints a few hundred employees or maybe even fills a thousand positions during his term but of usually of fairly centrist people, the current administration being an exception. 
or at least people who push power-wielding toward their ideological goal only a little bit in their small domains. In the big picture, that is nothing compared to the millions and millions of people who are directly or indirectly already employed by states or the federal government. Take the subject of Lukianoff and Haidt's book, Rapidly Changing Beliefs About Free Speech and Allowable Opinion Among the College-Educated Young. We owe everything from cancel culture to mansplaining to microaggressions to intolerant political polarization to this decentralized change in how young people look at the world. And he says, I have a hard time believing that Trump's minor changes in the tax code more fundamentally altered the lives of Americans than this. Or to take a literally more close-to-hand example, your smartphone. In less than a decade, smartphones went from exciting tech innovation, innovation rather, to being everywhere. No government did that. No politician enacted laws for that. No president willed into existence all the massive changes to our lives that smartphones have permitted. For good and bad, of course. But even the narrowly economic outcomes aren't that affected by the latest flavor of political power. Caleb Silver at Investopedia reports the president's ability to impact the economy and markets is generally indirect and marginal. And while presidents certainly can impact the stock market, the president probably gets too much blame and too much credit when it goes down or up. Why would we ever think that the outcome of an election would be the literal end of the world, one old silly white man against another, or woman in the case of 2016? How is one guy our Lord and Savior, but the other one, in my landlady's words, the most dangerous man alive? Well, King Book says it's a mistake to think that all this power overcomes outcomes in the world and that it accrues, that all this power over outcomes in the world accrues to the presidency. He says it isn't a binary world. It never was Trump or nothing or Trump or utopia. What can be reasonably ascribed to Trump is the minor difference between him and the next guy, who in the grand scheme of thing, uh, things agrees with him on 95% of the issues. Deflated by the sum of changes in technology, markets, finance, trends, fashion, even societal beliefs. Bottom line is, crying about the results of an election half a world away is not only useless, he says it is entirely misplaced. And I would add to that, not just for the folks in the UK who are concerned about it, That applies to you and me as well. We're better off to focus on those areas where we have influence and to use that influence wisely. So let's get to it. This is The Brian Hyde Show.